This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about what I'm calling the great transition that many people think we're in the middle of right now. We'll hear several topics that at first glance may seem to be unrelated, but that I think are all tied together with a thread that runs through all of them and points the way toward the Great Transition. Clips today come from This Is Hell, Democracy Now!, The Ezra Klein Show, Sustainable Human, The Laura Flanders Show, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and History Extra. There are polls in the last year showing that Americans are unhappy with Trump, they're unhappy with Congress, they're unhappy with both parties, they're unhappy with their own party, they're unhappy with their jobs. There was even an article a year ago this month that had the headline, American voters are unhappy about everything, polls show. How much do you think our collective unhappiness here in the U.S.? I mean, there was just another poll in the last couple of weeks about how unhappy Americans are, uh, and not only with our politicians, our governments, our jobs, but everything. How much is our unhappiness caused by a culture of cruelty, whether we acknowledge it or not? I, 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 I can't tell you how central that question now is to my work, because I think that what we have to face up to is that isolation, isolating people is an act of terrorism. It's basically a form of terrorism. And I, and I, and I think that the inequality that we see in the United States, the need for people to the, the, the way in which people embrace time as a deprivation and not a luxury, people who are just simply working to survive, young people who have college degrees and have no place to go with them except second-rate, low-paying jobs, workers who all of a sudden are on unemployment and hate themselves for it because they've been told that it's their problems. I mean, I, I think that when you put all these things together, what you get is an enormous amount of loneliness. You get an enormous amount of isolation. Remember, this is a president who never used the word democracy in either his inaugural speech or his first speech to Congress. This is not an administration that talks about community. All it talks about is war. All it talks about is competition. All it talks about is greed and wealth, crises. And I, and I, and I think that this is a language that in, in, in many ways is mocked by the irrational belief that everybody's a stranger. You know, that everybody basically is isolated. And hence, what do we get? We get the, dr the crisis of drug use. We get the, the, the collapse into self-meditation, you know, mediation, sorry. We, uh, we get the, a collapse into therapy. You know, we get a collapse into self-help manuals. I mean, there's no broader language to basically bring people together in ways that would suggest that, you know, we, we don't have to bear this alone. I mean, I... You can live next to somebody for, 20, for 15 years now and they never talk to you. You know, you can go to school and all you're told is you have to mimic the logic of reality TV, that there's just winners and losers, enemies and friends. This is the language of war. It's the language of fear. You know, it's a, it's a language that shreds any sense of shared responsibility in the name of unbridled greed, individualism. And it, and it seems to me an aesthetics of vulgarity. Let's talk about that individualism just for a moment. Tressie McMillan-Cottom was on our show, and she said that the new social contract is 
you're on your own. And she said, definitely do not sign that contract. Is it possible to protect the rights of the individual while still embracing social responsibility? How much do those two things conflict? Because within our political debate, it seems the two are at loggerheads. Do they have to be? I mean, look, we don't have to believe Milton Friedman, right? I mean, we don't have to believe Ayn Rand. We don't have to believe that freedom is just about, you know, the, 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 a matter of interference. Other people should interfere with our lives. I mean, it seems to me that we have to understand a notion of freedom that suggests that freedom really gets, gains its greatest opportunities and capacities in communities that support it. I mean, that's very different, but I think there's also something else. I think that we have sort of anchored the notion of freedom into political rights and, in, 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 and into uh, personal rights. You know, we, we talk about the freedom to, to, to vote, you know, the freedom to be able to move around, the freedom of speech. What we don't talk about are social freedoms, social rights. We don't talk about the fact that people have to have an, an economic foundation to be able to exercise political rights. There has to be an economic foundation for people to exercise personal rights. Without that, the question of agency becomes meaningless. So I think the real way to talk about freedom is to link it to questions of agency. To what degree does a notion of freedom work to enable us to not only satisfy our most basic needs, but to be able to exercise a level and a capacity of agencies in which we're not just simply responding to the world, but we're actually helping to shape it. Is the difference then between Trump supporters and those who oppose Trump, is it that one side believes that unbridled individualism and competition are good for democracy, and the other believes compassion, sharing, and concern for each other are at the heart of democracy? I, 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 I certainly think that those elements matter, but I, I think there's another distinction that it seems to me is quite crucial, and that is, is one willing to give up democracy? in order to imagine a future that matters? Or is one willing to invest in democracy for a future that matters? That's the discourse. That's the dividing line. And we have to ask ourselves, what kind of totalitarian authoritarian tendencies in the past 40 years have actually pushed people to the point where they no longer believe that democracy works? That what we need is a hero, a savior, an authoritarian. What we need is the concentration of power by a group that can lead us into the promised land, that we're willing to give up our freedom and our sense of agency in order to somehow escape the hell in which we find ourselves. So the question now becomes, where's the real failure here? Is it a failure of the imagination? Is it a failure of education? Is it a failure of the culture? Or is it about the success of an ideology that has literally so dismantled the civic culture that makes democracy possible that that language no longer matters? Was this cruelty that you write about, this culture of cruelty that we're seeing, was this inevitable? Was this the obvious outcome of what would take place as long as neoliberalism was continually pursued? Absolutely. Uh, in my mind, absolutely. Look, you know, you, you and I have been around. I'm much older than you are. I could be your father. But <laughs> you and I have been around for a long time. And, you know, you go back to the 1980s when this language begins, when all of a sudden we're talking about how all problems are individual problems. Individual responsibility means that, in a sense, that any problem that anybody faces it will be a matter of character, not a matter of un- un- unearthing systemic injustices. Think about the language of hate that began to emerge. Think about the survival of the fittest ethos that all of a sudden ran rampant. Think about how economic activity all of a sudden was removed 
from any sense of social responsibility. Think about the way in which the schools and civic culture became undermined. Think about how increasingly the distinctions between fact and fiction were eliminated. You know, think about how civic education all of a sudden was replaced by teaching for the test. It goes on and on. I mean, they built a frame of reference. They built a language. They built a system of cruelty in which they would actually argue things like school children who receive free meals should basically work for those meals. I mean, people like Paul Ryan used the language that in the 1960s would have, people would have laughed at these people. They would have laughed at them. Or they would have basically said, this is nothing more than an expression of the worst kind of sadism. I mean, they built a web of vocabulary. They built a set of values so at odds with the social contract, so racist, so nativist, so big, filled with so much bigotry that as it got picked up and, of course, was, was helped by Democrats who basically deregulated the airwaves, as the right wing came along and all of a sudden seized on that cultural element and used it as a primary educational tool to depoliticize people and remove them from any sense of responsibility, you end up with Trump. Trump is the end point of a neoliberalism that transforms itself into a fascist logic, a logic based on disposability, exclusiveness, privatization, deregulization, commodification, and hatred. We don't say the job of fixing car accidents lies with people who've just been mangled in car accidents and doctors in A&E, right, in an emergency room, right? We say that actually the whole society has to deal with car accidents. We have driving tests and seatbelts and airbags and speed limits and, you know, we arrest DUIs, right? In a similar way, I think one of the cruelest things we do is we put all of the burden of solving depression and anxiety on people who are already depressed and anxious and their families. Actually, what we need is a societal response to this. And also partly because the factors that are making, the nine factors that are making some, some of us really depressed and anxious are actually making most of us unhappy to some degree, right? Instead of just telling this biological story where there's this minority of people who have this internal malfunction, actually, when you explain, they're reacting to the same things that Everyone watching Democracy Now! is reacting to, to some degree. There will be nobody watching Democracy Now! who is not affected by one of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about to some degree. Now, we're not all depressed and anxious, thank God. But, but, but those factors are playing out in everyone. And we need to... It's, it's a signal. You know, one thing, as you can tell from my voice, although I spend a lot of my time here, I'm a European, I'm British. One thing that constantly amazes British people when we come to the United States is the existence of indigestion pills, right? Because when you're offered them as a British person, you go, but wait a minute, indigestion is a signal from your body that something's, you're not doing something right, right? It's actually a signal to slow down. It's not a malfunction, it's a function. And although this was a very painful thing for me to absorb, I came to think that while obviously depression is infinitely more terrible and the worst thing I've ever been through than, than, than indigestion, in a similar way, depression is not a pathology. Depression is a signal that something is not going right in our culture. When one in five people is going to take a psychiatric drug in this, this society, in this culture, that is a sign that all the alarm bells are going off, right? And it, what we've done up to now is we pathologized that signal and I think kind of insulted it by just saying, oh, it's just, there's a really interesting illustration of this. 
was discovered in the 1970s. So in the 70s, this really interesting thing was discovered about depression that was so inconvenient, it was kind of shunted aside. So in the 1970s, US psychiatrists wrote up for the first time a checklist of depression symptoms so they could standardize the diagnosis of depression across the United States. And, you know, the checklist is pretty obvious. It's what most people would think of, things like feeling worthless, um, that kind of thing. And there's 10 of them. And they distributed this to psychiatrists and general doctors across the United States. And they said, if a patient shows more than five of these symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill. So they start doing it. They send it out. It's in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is like the Bible for how you diagnose these things. But after a little while, doctors started to come back with this really inconvenient point. They said, but if we use these guidelines, we have to diagnose every grieving person as mentally ill because everyone who's grieving matches this criteria. So the psychiatrists got together. Obviously, they thought, well, this is not right. So they created something called the grief loophole or the grief exception, which said, use these criteria to diagnose someone unless they've lost someone they love in the past year, in which case it doesn't count. Don't diagnose them as mentally ill. So psychiatrists start using that. But this started begging a really awkward question. Psychiatrists started asking, well, wait a minute. We're being told that depression is just a brain disease that should just be diagnosed with a checklist, except in one unique case where there's one thing in life that means this is actually a legitimate and understandable response. Why is that the only thing that means that it's understandable and not insane to react this way? Why, why just if you, you lose someone you love? Why not if you lose your job? Why not if you lose your home? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years? But as Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, an amazing woman who's one of the leading experts on this debate, explained to me, that requires you to think about context, right? That requires you to actually admit that depression is, to a large degree, a response to life. It shows the, the fact that you even have to make that point, Dr. Cassiatore said to me, uh, she lost her own child in, in childbirth, her daughter Cheyenne. So to me, it's a sign that we just don't get human suffering in this culture. Anyway, because Dr. Cassiatore and so many other people were raising this difficult debate, saying actually this requires a real system overhaul, the psychiatrists react, the psychiatric bodies reacted, they got rid of the grief exception. Doesn't exist anymore. So now if your child dies in the morning, you can be diagnosed that day. In fact, Dr. Cassiatore's research shows 32% of grieving parents are, are diagnosed in the first 48 hours and, and drugged. Now that tells you something about how we don't understand pain. We grieve because we've loved. Grief is not a pathology, right? Grief is a deep human response. And in a similar way, depression is a signal that our deeper needs are not being met. It's a form of grief for your own life. And now, sadly, when someone dies, there's nothing we can do about that grief except hold the person, who, the survivors, and love them. But with this grief for our own lives, there is something we can do. There are these seven scientifically proven ways we can change the way we're living to reduce some of these deep underlying causes of depression and anxiety. But if all we do is pathologize these feelings, and I have to say, you know, going around speaking to people all across the United States about this, almost everyone I spoke to had been told, in, in, not in these exact words, that their depression was a malfunction to be fixed with, with just a, a bit of tweaking, chemical tweaking. That's not true. There's some value in chemicals taking some of the edge off these symptoms. Of course, you know, one of my closest relatives is a struggling single mother who, who, you know, is working really hard to pay the rent and gets home at the end of the day and collapses, right? Um, 
Now, the idea of saying to her, it's your job to fix this society and it's your job to democratise your workplace and fight for universal basic income would be ridiculous. Of course, she wants to take the edge off the symptoms and she's right to want to take the edge off the symptoms. And for her, the, um, the side effects, which are quite significant for a lot of people, don't outweigh that benefit. So she's making the right choice for her. But I think most people watching this can see that is not the solution for the society, right? It's not for us just to accept that we're trapped in this depressogenic environment and just take some of the edge off. The, the solution in the medium and longer term, as the World Health Organization has been telling us, is to deal, to, to listen to the signal, listen to the alarm bells that are going off and, and, and respond accordingly. Now, what happened when the drug companies began marketing these drugs was a kind of effect. Um, you know, we all know when we take selfies, you take, you know, 30 selfies, you throw away, in my case, the 29 where you look like you've got a big double chin. And then the 30th one is the one that becomes your Tinder profile picture, right? A very similar thing happened with the scientific studies that the drug companies commissioned. They commissioned enormous numbers of studies. They junked all the ones where the drugs showed no or low effect, and they only published the ones which showed a really strong effect. There was one study I cite in the book where I think they gave the drug to 247 people, and they only published the results for 27 of them, who happened to be the ones who had a really powerful effect. So what happened is they hugely exaggerated the effect of the drugs. They hugely exaggerated the amount it moved people on the Hamilton scale. People might remember when these drugs first came out in the 90s, when I started taking them, we were told they would make people better than well, right? No one says that now. And this was then established in court. Elliot Spitzer, when he was the Attorney General of New York State, who deserves a lot of credit for this, um, took a, a really important court case against the drug companies, which just established that they had lied and they had to make a big payout about a lot of the effects of the drugs, not least the effect on teenagers. There was a, a leaked memo of actually the drug that I started taking when I was a teenager, Paxil, in which the company admitted it just didn't work for teenagers. But they said, I think the phrase was, it would be commercially unacceptable to the profile of, of paroxetine, which is the other name for it. To, to kind of release this result so they didn't, right? Now, I want to stress that doesn't mean there's no effect of the drugs. There is a real effect. There is some real value. But they were massively oversold. And this is part of the problem that, and this is one thing that I kept stumbling across, right? There's all this evidence for these different ways of dealing with depression and anxiety. I'll give you one more example just quickly. There's a huge amount of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. There's um, a state prison in Michigan where... Um, just by coincidence, big, one big part of the, um, the prison looks out over just concrete and another part of the prison looks out over kind of lush greenery. Turns out it, you're random, it's random where you end up in the prison, but the people who look out over lush greenery were 23% less likely to develop mental health problems. You know, as a species, we evolved in that kind of environment. When animals are deprived of that kind of environment in zoos, when they're deprived of their habitat, they go crazy. Parrots rip out their feathers. Horses start swaying obsessively. Um, elephants will grind their tusks down to nothing. Um, if, you're if an animal is deprived of its habitat, as Dr. Isabel Benke taught me for the book, They'll go crazy. We've been deprived of our habitat. There's all this evidence that nature exposure really significantly reduces depression and anxiety. And an amazing program that I alluded to in the interview at the top of the show that has gets people to work in gardens and massively reduces their depression. Now, why has no one been told about that? Because there's a $10 billion industry in telling a depressed person that the only solution is drugs. And there's a $0 billion industry in the gardening programs that have been piloted in East London, which are shown to have twice as an effect, twice as big an effect, moving people on the Hamilton scale as chemical antidepressants. So I think 
It's one of the, and you guys document this so well in Democracy Now! almost every day, the distortions of neoliberalism, right? That they, and it's not that there isn't, these are not good scientists, they are, but it, what it does is it constantly pushes people towards um, focusing on just one very narrow part of the solution, which is the one that can be monetized. I had a weird experience exactly this time last year, actually, almost, where I was invited, you know, Peter Thiel, the disgusting PayPal gazillionaire who funded the Trump campaign. I was invited by him to a, a conference which was looking at, in Silicon Valley, that was looking at how to develop apps to deal with depression, anxiety and addiction. And because of my previous book, Chasing the Screen, which was about addiction, I got invited to speak there. And it was this really fascinating illustration about the relationship between neoliberalism and these, these exclusively biological stories. So there were these amazing scientists there, people who were really smart and really good people. And the whole day, I was the last person to speak, I think by coincidence. The whole day, if all you had known about depression, anxiety and addiction was from this conference, you would have thought they were just spontaneous brain problems, right? All they did was spend time looking at pictures of brains. And what they were looking at was incredibly good and important and thrilling science. But when I tried to speak to them afterwards, I, when I gave my speech, I was trying to think, what, what can I say about this? And I just said, it, to me, it's like you could explain the plot of Romeo and Juliet using Newtonian physics, right? It would all be true. But you wouldn't understand anything about why Romeo and Juliet do anything, right? We happen to be very close to the Tenderloin district where there's a lot of um, people with addiction problems who are homeless. And I said to them, let's just all go out of here Talk to the first homeless person with addiction problems we hear, we meet, listen to their life story, and then come back and tell me that the main problem going on there is the, you know, a malfunctioning amygdala. It's, it's bizarre to speak in these reductively biological terms about what are clearly problems in people's lives. Now, the biology is really important. I'm strongly in favor of neuroscience. And as I talk about in the book, and I was taught by an amazing professor of neuroscience, Professor Mark Lewis, there are ch when you become depressed, there are changes in the brain that make it harder to get out. And the solution for that is for you to have more love and more support, not less. But what you see is, the reason I mention it's Peter Thiel, is I don't think it's a coincidence. I'm not implying that there's any conspiracy or there's any conscious agency in this. There absolutely isn't. But I don't think it's a coincidence. You've got, you know, the 1% of the 1% funding the Trump campaign, actively funding the spreading of neoliberalism and loads of the factors that are causing depression. And that that overlaps with a narrative that just says to people, actually, all this pain caused in part by this system is just due to a biological malfunction. And the solution, by the way, is to create more things that we sell people. I think you can see that there's a kind of unconscious relationship there. We've created a system that, 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 that only looks for solutions that can be monetized and that neglects actually the more meaningful human solutions that are all around us and that at some level we all intuitively know are more necessary. So you sat down with <laughs> these people, right? You sat down with, with skinheads and neo-Nazis. You sat down with jihadists and former jihadists. Mm. You befriended them. You, you got to know them. You, you broke bread with them. You marched with them in some cases. What is motivating them? You know, where is all this hate coming from? Well, I think this is something that I found with both the jihadis and, and the white supremacists is that hate is a really convenient cover for a sense of loss and a sense of alienation. Um, anger and rage and violence are perfect 
covers for feelings of vulnerability or or feeling like you're not good enough, feeling like you are less than. So what I, I find really interesting is that what seems to drive these men, as much as we would all like to think that it is the politics and it is the ideology, I think, of course, that is a part of the the picture. But I think the the reasons why they are drawn to these types of ideologies is emotional and human needs that are not being met in 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 their lives in their day-to-day lives and and the kind of human needs that i think these types of movements extremist movements satisfy for people are a sense of belonging are a sense of purpose are a sense of brotherhood and community and feeling like you matter feeling like you have something that you can contribute towards feeling powerful instead of powerless feeling like you have a voice feeling like you're significant and you know all of these needs are something that we all look for you know it's it this is not you know specific to extremists this is all of us i think and and we all satisfy these needs in in whatever ways that we do and and these men or men in you know mostly men this is these are the movements that they're finding where they can satisfy that and and i will also i will go back to the recruiters again i think the recruiters on both sides of these movements are very clever and very cynically and intentionally targeting people who might be somewhat either broken or who are in a transitional period of their life where they're feeling more lost than maybe they would otherwise um and they very cynically prey on that. So they take all of your feelings of insecurity and vulnerability and, and, and all these things that you're looking for and channel it towards these ideologies, give you black and white answers, give you certainty instead of the insecurity that you feel and the fear that you feel about the world around you that's changing really quickly. And you just can't get a foothold. You, you, you don't understand how you fit in. So that's sort of the biggest lesson that I've learned is that this actually boils down to very, very basic human needs, which also is a is a tremendous source of hope in a way, in my eyes, because that means that these are the types of needs that I think as a society we can potentially do something about. Yeah, you know, this is so interesting to me because what you're really talking about is a, a kind of failure of community. Yeah. So in a lot of these sort of debates that people have about what's motivating extremist of, of any kind is, you know, is it identity? Is it politics? Is it economics? Is it ideology? You name it. And what people often miss is that you can be, at least according to a lot of sort of conventional metrics, be reasonably well off. You can have a, a, a decent job, a stable income and all the rest of it, but you can still feel a kind of emptiness yes. and, and inertia in your own life, a, a lack of meaning, call it whatever you want. Yeah. Um, and if you're in that place, the appeal of these these movements, um, these struggles, whatever you want to call it, is enormously powerful. And it's very easy to see how people can get sucked into that. And this is something I think you explore really well in both films. I think you're absolutely right, because a lot of people, you know, said to me that, well, you know, it's not because I think people are constantly looking for one answer and there is no one answer. You know, people people do the things that they do in life for, for different reasons and for a mixture of different reasons. And those reasons often evolve and, and shift just from day to day even. But, you know, uh, economic marginalization and deprivation is a factor. 
or but it is one of the factors but a lot of people will say well you know look at these guys who went and joined IS you know some of them were educated and they were doctors and they were this and they were that so obviously there you know there's no economic deprivation there but what people don't realize is that it's deprivation is not just about economics it's also about like you're saying a, a kind of a spiritual emotional and inner deprivation you know when you feel lost when you feel like your your life and your 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 world around you is just crumbling down on you if somebody offers you acceptance somebody offers you understanding somebody offers you a place and a community and 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 some something a goal that you can pour all of those feelings um towards that's as you say it's incredibly powerful and intoxicating and incredibly it's a very appealing invitation because I, I you know when i sat down with the the jihadis i found myself uh to my horror actually you know because uh, as i said i i mean i hated these guys i have hated guys like this most of my life i've been afraid of them like nothing else i mean they they have been the source of destroying my life in so many ways for so many years but was so so when i sat down with them and they would say what their life has been like and 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 the sense of rejection that they feel and everything that they've gone through i remember sitting there going my goodness me too and then they talk about you know alienation and racism and discrimination and what that does to you what that really feels like and i remember sitting there just nodding and nodding and nodding going yeah me too me too i completely i i get it i i completely feel like that too but then at the end of all of that i would always sit down and sort of think to myself but what is it that makes him pick up a gun and i pick up a camera and the answer to that question is when you are lost or when you are in that dark place or that insecure place or that fearful place in your life it really matters who shows up at that point in your life so if the person that shows up is somebody loving and caring somebody who wants the best for you or you know somebody who's who's a teacher or a mentor or 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 a loved one or it is somebody who uh is looking for another recruit what you end up doing with those feelings is two very very different trajectories you know but the starting point is you know remarkably similar yeah you know it, it was weird watching your films that at many times i felt compassion yeah. for some of these people which was very strange it's disturbing but it's yeah if you just pause for a second and reflect on the extent to which human beings are conditioned creatures and how we are shaped by all these forces in our life over which we have very little control and how easily if i was born in another place at another time under very different circumstances this could have been me yeah. 100% yeah and i think it's that is so often lost we get these sort of caricature two dimensional explanations of very difficult complex problems because it's easier to put in a box and explain that way but it doesn't even come close to getting at the reality of what's happening and it, why it doesn't and also what's what's interesting about that is that that's exactly what extremists do too and so that's what i don't appreciate about our you know quote unquote, our our response to extremists is because we're sort of reducing them down like you're saying down to caricatures in the same way that they're doing to the rest of us just simplifying things and wanting to operate out of a place of self-righteousness and just wanting to condemn people and just wanting to blame somebody else for my own problems that's exactly what extremists do that key term is what you said which is self-reflection i think 
that's something that extremists don't allow any space for. And I think the rest of us who are trying to work towards changing that, we also have to ensure that self-reflection is something that remains on the table for us as well, that is something that we exercise and that we don't forget that these are human beings. In a way, they sort of want us to forget that. They want us in a way to dehumanize them because it makes it easier for them to dehumanize us in return. And 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 I think it's really important not to walk into that sort of trap. And it's important that we don't become what it is that we're fighting against. Loneliness is almost baked into the cake as far as a modern society with, with the kind of social setup and infrastructure that we have today. The people you look at every day, the people in the house across the street even, may not even be people that you know, or maybe at most you know their name, but you don't know their story. You don't know where they came from, the hardships and triumphs of their life. We're not involved in each other's stories anymore. And we also don't depend on each other in the way that most people did for most of human history. When your well-being depended on the health and gifts of the people around you. Gifts create relationships. Whereas a money transaction does not create a relationship. I paid you, man. Like, you don't have anything on me, I don't have anything on you, we're done. When all of our relationships become mediated by money, then we have again a feeling of being alone, a feeling of not being connected. And we, we live in an economy that is moving more and more and more toward the totalization of money transactions. On a deeper level, I think every human being has a need to be useful, a need to do more with your life than just being secure, uh, having enough money, feeding your family. We need more than that. We need to contribute to something that's beautiful to us, that we care about for real. Certainly on one level, if you are just a cog in the machine, replaceable by somebody else, you're going to feel not needed. But, but I think even more than that, you might be doing something irreplaceable to your company. But still, if your company isn't doing something that fills your life with meaning, that makes you say, yeah, I'm doing what I was put here on Earth to do, then you're still not going to feel fulfilled. On the other hand, if what you're doing is something very humble, if it's part of a cause that you believe in, and if you can see that what you're doing is actually necessary for that cause to be manifested on Earth, then you'll still feel good about what you're doing, probably. The key isn't necessarily in finding work that's challenging, where no one else could replace you. It's really more about where do I put my life energy? Because 
my lifetime is a gift. My life is a gift. What am I going to do with this? When I have that sneaking suspicion that I'm not doing what this gift is for, then underneath it all, I'm going to have unease, disquiet, and a yearning that pushes me all the time to find what is it that I'm here to do. There's this fear. If I give generously, what about me? What's going to be left for me? Who's going to take care of me? Because we don't see a world where the giver is taken care of too. So, therefore, we want to be financially independent. We want to not need anybody's gifts. We want to be able to pay for everything. And that leaves us alone. This paradise of financial independence means that you don't need anybody and they don't really need you either. Now, actually, that's an illusion. You're still depending on people, on the sun, on the water, on the soil. You're still in total dependency. It's just dependency on strangers, dependency on distant beings that you're not in any other kind of relationship with. That is where our civilization has taken us. And we're pretty lonely here. For the lonely person who's not lonely because they don't have friends, but maybe feels lonely even with all those friends, begin to orient toward the perception of gift, meaning to see your life as a gift, to see your purpose as being to give, to understand that you have to receive in order to continue giving, and to evaluate situations. Like, what am I meant to give in this situation? And what am I meant to receive? If you can get in touch, and this is not a to-do, it's a invitation. Maybe even listening to this, you'll receive that gift, which is, oh yeah, I am a beautiful being. I have been generously gifted life and breath and sun and love and a body. I didn't earn this, but here I am and I know why I'm here. I know that I yearn to contribute to a beautiful world. When you are in the gift, you will no longer feel lonely. And deep connections will grow with other people as a result of this orientation toward gift. seeing power and wealth concentrate, a trend capitalism tends to accelerate. But as that's becoming less and less tolerable for more and more reasons, Gar Alperovitz is seeing a new system evolving, one that puts community rather than capital at its core by design.
Kawaka Corps is just one example of the issues or the, yes. group, the ideas and questions that you lift up in the book. Name some of the others. I mean, I know you deal with finance, you deal with banking. What yeah. are some of the others? Well, starting with worker and community. Community is the center of the argument that unless you rebuild a culture of community, which requires economic institutions that nurture rather than divide the culture. And media institutions. And media institutions. We're counting on you for developing that for us, Laura. Working on it. What, what, if we don't start with community, you can't build from A to B to C to D. So community design is very important. But obviously, finance is part of that. And you know, one of the things we're seeing all over the country, all these things are beginning to develop. There are, there are the structures of ownership and control in Cleveland, but now in Rochester and maybe also in Jackson, Mississippi complex community slash worker co-ops, but not just freestanding. But banks are another piece. There are public banks, which six years ago, I think when we first met or seven or eight years ago at the first banking conference, it was a kind of an eye, my goodness, maybe someday. The Philadelphia's got it on the agenda. Uh, Santa Fe's got it. Los Angeles, Oakland, Washington, D.C. So there's a big expansion now of an idea which seemed extremely impossible of cities and communities owning public banks and then using that resource to finance worker-owned co-ops, complex development projects, et cetera, et cetera. And something similar going on around energy. Energy is the same thing. And so we're seeing all the pieces of the puzzle, many of them at one level, community or co-op. At another level, we're getting to city or larger community. We're seeing neighborhood development as in Cleveland, which is in large cities, a neighborhood of 20,000 people is a big piece of the actions. The story, the history story that you tell, though, that I really want to make sure you, you, you tell to our audience is the parallel that you see between the, the agriculture-based populist movements of the late 19th century and this upsurge of conversation and interest and activism that hasn't been naming itself as a movement yet, but, but maybe is. In my view, we are the most interesting period Let me say this carefully as a historian. (laughs) I think this is the most interesting period of American history, bar none, including the American Revolution. I think it's a big deal. Corporate capitalism has run out the options that can sustain its legitimacy. All too briefly, in the 19th century, every time they got in trouble, they moved west, took more land, expanded, moved the problem out. In the 20th century, by chance, not by design, in the first quarter of the century, the system was in great trouble. And World War I bailed us out. Now, they didn't do that for that reason. Same thing in the, in, the, in the middle part of the century, the second quarter. The Great Depression was floundering at the end of the 1930s. World War II bailed it out. Then Korea, Vietnam, and the big Cold War, third quarter of the century. The, in, during the Korean War, we were at 14% of the GDP in military spending. This economy now has only 3.3% of the economy for military, and it's huge but not enough to manage the system. So it's kind of been on life support. It's in decay. They, they, they can't manage the system properly and they're running out of big wars, which they can't do because of nuclear weapons. So I think the system will continue to stagnate. There, there will be violence and a sense of building that something's really wrong here because I think they've run out of the capacity to actually manage it in a way that keeps it legitimate. This period is the opening phase. You know, I'm a historian as well as a political economist. This is a period where the big deal is, I think, on the table of opening the large, large questions of capitalism without the usual capacity to resolve them available. So time for organizing, time to rethink the old models. And that's exciting. A lot of people are rethinking. We don't like state socialism and what is the alternative model, which is what this is. Is it this 
swirl of activity around new economy that creates the new political frontier, as it were? I think what creates the frontier is the pain levels at almost every level. And I think what the new economy movement, which we've talked about many times and we were both involved in, is beginning to look for ways in different parts of it to build up new alternatives at every different level. Black Lives Matter is looking at these things. What's going on in Jackson, Mississippi could be very interesting. But also there's, there are Hispanic developments that are people haven't quite caught on in, in Albuquerque and in Los Angeles. There, there are many many, many interesting experiments in the white community, but not enough. But what about the politics of it? Well, the politics of it is partly now reactive, I think. Angry, resisting, and that's very necessary. And beginning, as in Black Lives, to put out platforms. I think the next phase is actually getting serious about, if you don't like corporate capitalism and you don't like state socialism, what is it that you want? And let's go beyond slogans and really have a serious as I say, ideas matter sometime. Let's have a real discussion of what makes sense and how we build on the pieces of the puzzle that are beginning to develop all over the country, laying groundwork. You know, my heroes are the, the civil rights activists in Mississippi in the 1930s. They were the people who laid down the groundwork for what, you know, it's easy to join a movement when the movement's moving. It's very hard to do it at the early stages when you're developing the preconditions of the movement. And I think that's where we are. Gar Alperwitz is an historian, political economist, activist, writer, and government official. In addition to a distinguished career in academia, he is a co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative, a research institution developing practical, policy-focused, and systematic paths towards ecologically sustainable, community-oriented change and the democratization of wealth. His latest project is called The Pluralist Commonwealth, which is an economic model that is neither traditional corporate capitalism nor traditional state socialism. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Gar Alperwitz. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Gar, let's get to the nub of your thesis here. As I read it, we have a system of corporate capitalism. It has great influence politically, but it's not really delivering, given its power and its pretension, for the American people. Uh, there is a Wage stagnation, there's enormous underemployment, people working 23 hours a week, and that counts as being fully employed. Millions of workers have dropped out so that their numbers are not reflected in the lower unemployment rate, which is around 4% at the present time. And in your introduction to this new book, Principles, it's called, it's a very handy paperback by Gar Perovitz, who calls himself a political economist in the great tradition of the institutional economists early in the 20th century. But you basically say, quote, what defines the current crisis is different from those of the past and unusual is that the system neither succeeds in meeting the needs and aspirations of countless Americans, nor does it collapse as theorized by some analysts. Rather, it breeds pain, decay, delusionment, but also potentially the basis of a different long-term politics, which you write about in your book. And you call it a systematic design, which we'll elaborate in a few minutes. But I want to read another excerpt from your preface. And you say, 
institutions matter. You're talking about the decline of the labor movement, which is now down to 10.7% of workers unionized and 6.4% in the private sector. And that is weakening a major bulwark against corporate runover of our economy, a major challenge to hold corporations to the standards of respecting workers' rights, etc. And then you say, quote, institutions matter. One of the central observations of the following essay is that a broad range of new institutions is quietly developing just below the surface of most political reporting. Among the forms are new cooperatives, neighborhood corporations, land trusts, municipally owned energy, and broadband systems, hybrid forms of community and worker ownership, and many more. And you say that you're going to suggest, quote, that these and larger forms based upon them are important, both as defining elements of a next system beyond traditional capitalism and traditional socialism, and at the same time as key institutional power elements of the substructure of what may become a new politics of progressive systemic transformation within and throughout. So can you describe these institutions? Because they've been around for decades, like consumer cooperatives, but they don't get any press, national press. Millions of people belong to worker co-ops and consumer co-ops, credit unions, electrical co-ops, etc. And yet all we hear in the mass media are the usual fights back and forth between politicians who are conservative and politicians who are liberal. Why don't you describe what's really going on on the ground in this country and expanding. Locally owned businesses are expanding rapidly in the renewable energy area and community finance area and farmer to food area and community health clinics are expanding, although we haven't gotten full Medicare yet. Why don't you describe this scene, Gar, which uh, seems to escape the nightly news or the front pages of our newspapers. Well, uh, that's one of the really important observations. And just as you've said, Ralph, just under the radar, this is not being covered, but there is an exploding development of new forms of ownership and old forms of ownership. You know, many, many, you've described many of them that, that are discussed in the book. But the point is that they're being driven, and I think this is critical, by the pain levels of the failings of the existing system. So it's not just that people are kind of saying, wouldn't it be nice to have a worker co-op or wouldn't it be nice to have a new credit union or wouldn't it be nice to have a neighborhood land trust? They're doing this because the pain levels that are growing around the country are not being addressed by the political or the economic system. So that this is something that I think is going to expand throughout the country. One of the most intriguing ones, which you didn't mention, is the new movement for public banks at the city level primarily. We have one state bank in the North Dakota, which has been there 100 years, basically a socialist bank in the very conservative state of North Dakota, supporting farmers, co-ops, small business, etc. Very successful. Many, many, many parts of the country in the last eight, nine years, there has been a pickup of movement. Philadelphia is considering a city bank. Washington is on the verge of setting up the first study. Santa Fe is in the same strongly ahead of this with a completed study. 
Oakland is working on this. Uh, Los Angeles, last I heard, every time I turn around, there's a new city that's beginning to think about a public bank designed to finance the kinds of things you were talking about, worker co-op. And, and just, just to make clear, th- these banks aren't going to compete with your consumer banks. They are taking the trillions of dollars in state-owned pension funds and other public funds and putting them in their own state banks and not paying these huge Wall Street fees and incurring the risk of Wall Street speculation with the people's money. And so you have trillions of dollars of public pension funds here. So just to be clear, Gar, you're talking about carving out an arena where the taxpayer and people who have these trust funds and pension funds can keep more of their money in a more safe way. And this money can be invested in public facilities instead of paying these outrageous fees or having to deal with the privatization moves of Goldman Sachs and other Wall Street firms. Exactly, exactly. And another piece of this is, you know, city and state tax revenues get deposited someplace. And they can be deposited in publicly owned banks, a city-owned bank or state-owned banks. 20 states have had legislation introduced to set up state banks like the one in North Dakota. And in turn, these are also financing some of the other institutions that are capable of financing on-the-ground worker co-ops, on-the-ground neighborhood corporations, on-the-ground land trusts, on-the-ground development in cities using funds that are paid for by the taxpayer but normally would have gone to Wall Street in just the way you described. But the point to, you know, to zero in on, these are institution-building operations, not simply uh, regulations and, quote, policy allowing the existing corporate banks standing there. We're setting up and seeing people set up alternative banking institutions that are designed to be in the public. Ralph, I think you were behind the movement to set up the co-op bank many years ago when you and I first met. But th- this is a renewal of that set of ideas starting at the grassroots level, and and that's only one example of the kind of thing that's discussed in the book. And by the way, the State Bank of North Dakota, which is over 100 years, has a sterling reputation. When the Wall Street banks were crashing, the State Bank of North Dakota was prospering. It provides student loans, it provides facilities for cities who are up against it. It's prudently run, it's honestly run, and it's in one of the most conservative states in the country. So the efforts in California and elsewhere that you pointed out have a great model that they can point to. Tell listeners who may not have an idea of all this, how many members are there of credit unions in the country, worker-owned co-ops, and other similar institutions of what you call a pluralist commonwealth? And the notion commonwealth, like a cooperative or a municipal enterprise, is the key here, that it's, it's not some big corporation, it is the Commonwealth. Last I looked, I think there was the membership in credit unions is now between 100 and 120 million members around the country. So a huge number, about just a little bit less than a third of the nation's population. And co-op worker-owned companies, there are two different kinds to know about. One is the simple worker co-op. There are only four or 500, maybe 600 of these around the country. A second kind is called the employer stock ownership plan, a different form of worker ownership. There are about 10 million of these. They are not as democratic, but they are changed in ownership. One of the things they do is they help stabilize jobs in local communities. They don't get up and run the way major corporations do. So some of these are quite advanced already in their development. And then on the ground, you're seeing what's called the quote new economy movement. Again, just as you pointed out, not covered by the press 
partly because they're not interested, partly because the local press has declined entirely and, and what's left of it is run by business interests. So you have to go to the web pages or books like this little book of principles to get information on what's really going on. But there's a huge surging new economy movement building these kinds of efforts on the ground, working with activists simultaneously to build a new movement that includes new development. I think that's one of the key features here to think about. We've had movements for different rights and different movements to oppose different policies or to support different policies, all of which in the progressive era, I, I certainly support. What's different here is these movements of the new economy movement are saying it's time to build new institutions, economic institutions that are democratic, but also critically give us a new power base as well in the communities around the country. This is the kind of thing that, you know, when the civil rights movement began to move, it, it's a 30-year development process. So was the feminist movement. So was the environmental movement. And here's we're seeing a movement, I think, well into its first decade and a half, beginning to really kind of burgeon and develop a whole momentum of its own, building up both the politics and an environmental vision and also new power institutions that can give some power to the organizing as it grows and develops over time. on to actually you're talking about the working week um one thing you'd like to see implemented was is a, a 15-hour work week um which probably is something that not many people would argue against um that was something that um john maynard Keynes um predicted actually we would achieve by by 2030 mm-hmm. do you do you think that that will happen um and, and also how would how would a shorter working week provide that income that would be needed for for the basic income that you would you would like to see Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think we completely need to rethink what work actually is. So nowadays, uh, in Britain, for example, we know from a recent poll that as much as 37% of all British workers think they have a job that doesn't need to exist. It's what the anthropologist David Graeber calls a bullshit job. Now, we could easily cut the work week by a third you know, get rid of all these jobs uh, and and be just as wealthy as we are now. Um, and d- don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about the teachers, the garbage men and the care workers here. These are, I'm more talking about like the consultants and the and the lawyers and, and uh, people working in the financial services who, and, and it's not me saying it, it's people themselves saying it, you know, um, my job isn't that useful. Uh and I think that shows that that we really need to rethink what work actually is. That we are that we are stuck with old definitions um, of what is important. And and that's what that's what people uh, and Keynes was one of them, but Isaac Asimov, one of the great science fiction writers as well, and, and many other great thinkers from the 1930s until the 1970s were dreaming about. Everyone believed until I think about 1980, all the experts thought that we would be working less and less and less and that the working week would keep shrinking. But somehow it hasn't happened. Uh, They all thought that the great challenge of the future would be boredom. You know, what are we going to do with all that free time? The great challenge of the future would be how to live the good life, how to do something useful. (laughs) Um, And what we see happening nowadays is that 
the funny thing is that Asimov, for example, he thought that psychologists uh, would have the biggest profession of the future because they would have to treat all the people who are bored. Uh, and what we see nowadays that it is indeed one of the biggest professions, uh, but not because people are bored, <laughs> but because they're completely stressed out. So I, th I think that that shows us that a lot of things happen differently than, than we thought it would uh, and that it could have all been very different. And then moving on to, to migration, I mean, we're sort of in a world where governments are, are across the world are, are moving to try and limit migration. Um, you know, you see, see it all on the news every day. I mean, you advocate open borders. Um, how do you think this would help achieve utopia? And, and is this something that, again, that we can see in history? Mm -hmm. um, well, you would be surprised that borders are, in fact, a quite recent invention. So in the 19th century, they mostly existed on papers, uh, on paper. So, um, passports, there, there were a few countries like, like the, the, the Ottomans and Russia who issued passports, but they were mostly considered for backwards countries. Um, this is what we call the first age of globalization at the end of the, at the end of the 19th century, where, where it was actually quite easy to travel around. It was only after the first world war and especially after the second world war that uh, borders became much more difficult to cross. And what I try to explain in my book is that there's a huge amount of evidence that migration is actually the most powerful instrument in the fight against global poverty. And that so many of the traditional arguments against it, such as the immigrants will take our jobs or they'll be lazy or they'll profit from our systems of social security or they're all criminals, etc., etc. It's just not true if you look at the actual evidence. Um, so I thought that it would be important to write something about that in a book about utopian visions for the future. Although I do know that this is probably the most utopian idea in the book. How do you think that the concept of utopia ha has changed through history? Um, well, for a long time, there was only one utopia. And this is what, uh, what historians and anthropologists call the body utopia. So as I said earlier in the interview, um, most of history, most people were sick, poor, hungry, stupid, dirty, and ugly. So <laughs> in the past, everything was worse. Uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise that when people dreamed of a better future, they mainly dreamed of, you know, a world without, uh, where, where you wouldn't be hungry, where you, everyone would have a roof above their head, etc. Um, there's a, there's a tradition that, or there was a tradition in the, in the low countries where, where this was called the land of cocaine, where, you know, just, uh, the rice fell out of the skies and, uh, the, the roasted goose flew, uh, right into, into your mouth. Um, uh, and th this was, this was the dream. The interesting thought experiment would, of course, be is what would happen if we would have a time machine go back to the middle ages, kidnap some peasants and then show them around in modern day Britain or the Netherlands where I live. I think people would basically say, well, this is it. You know, you've achieved our utopia, this, the, 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 the bodily utopia, because nowadays, I mean, more people are suffering from obesity than from hunger. Um, we've, as I said, we've achieved a lot in the past two centuries. Um, and so now there's room for new utopians to, to go further than we've already come. Mm. Do, you, do you think your ideas could extend beyond Western Europe? Well, definitely. I mean, the, the, the open borders utopia is mostly um, 
uh, a utopian vision for people who are not living in Western Europe and who are not living in what I call the modern day land of plenty. Uh, so definitely. And the universal basic income idea or giving free money to the poor is actually um, much more popular nowadays in the global south. We've seen a huge surge of cash transfer programs in the past 15 years from countries to India, Malawi, uh, Namibia had, has done a great experiment, uh, Mexico, Brazil. Um there's a very different kind of wealth welfare state being developed in those countries. It's all about unconditional money for the poor. And they find time and time again that it works. It's much more efficient. Uh, people put the money to good use. Um, and it's uh, it's much, much less humiliating than the systems of social security we have in countries like Britain and the Netherlands and the US. Um, Thomas More um, wrote the first formal utopia in the 16th century. How does that connect with your ideas? Well, I mean, he was he was the the one who coined the term. If you if you look at the word utopia, it's actually interesting. It's sort of a a word joke. It means both good place and nowhere. Um, and so so many people have read uh, Thomas More's book and didn't see the humor in it. I think that's very important, actually. If you look, for example, at the uh, the the one who gives the main uh, character in the book, the tour around the island of Utopia. His his name is Hithoveus, which means speaker of nonsense. I've always loved that. So um, you shouldn't take your utopian visions too seriously. You should take them very seriously and not too seriously at the same time. Uh, what we have seen in the 20th century is that there were many utopian thinkers who were obsessed with their blueprints and their five-year plans. And if if reality didn't turn out the way they wanted it to be, they'll, then they'll just force reality. I mean, that's what Leninism and Stalinism and Nazism was all about. Uh, and after that, we said, no more utopian thinking for us. Utopian thinking is simply too dangerous. But if you go back again to Thomas More, the original utopian thinker, you'll find a version of utopian thinking that's actually really powerful and um, has a lot more space for humor as well if everything you seek for the world in your book sort of comes to fruition um do you think we'll finally have achieved um utopia <laughs> well that's a, that's a, that's a funny question i sometimes get that remark from readers is that they say yeah but rodger what if we achieve all your utopias then what happens then we'll be in trouble <laughs> yeah. what then well there's a great great quote from oscar wilde i put that at the beginning of the book as well is that you know utopia is always the, the the destination in the distance. So, and everywhere, every time we land at the island called Utopia, we look out again and we look for new destinations. Humanity is always moving forward. But the problem is today is that we don't know what our des destination is. We can only look backward. I mean, you see this happening with Brexit, with Trump. And that's, that's why I think it's really important to reinvent the art of utopian thinking once again. We've just heard clips today, starting with This Is Hell, with a focus on the systemic cruelty in our politics, of which Trump is the natural endpoint. Democracy Now! spoke with Johan Hari about disconnection and disaffection brought about by the forces of neoliberal economics. 
Diaz Recline Show spoke with Dia Khan about her in-depth interactions with both jihadi and white supremacist extremists. Sustainable Human discussed the connection between the structures of our society and the epidemic of loneliness. The Laura Flanders Show interviewed Gar Alperovitz about building an economy that serves human needs. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour also spoke with Gar Alperovitz about some of the concrete progress toward a new economy that's already underway. And finally, we just heard History Extra talking with Rutger Bregman about some of the concepts in his book, Utopia for Realists, the most important of which is the need to rekindle utopian thinking in general. Members will be getting a bonus episode, uh, but I don't have extra clips on today's topic, so I'm going to be sharing a bit of one of my favorite hobbies that I've been enjoying recently, which is both fun and informative, so I get to share some fun things I've been learning recently with this hobby, so I think people are going to enjoy that. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, still consider supporting our work and getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. Though, of course, if you could afford way more, we would take that too. We have higher levels available as well, and we will happily take as much support as you want to throw our way. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now... We'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I didn't actually expect to be calling in so soon, but I heard your response to my earlier comment and felt it necessary to respond slightly to it. I actually do not disagree with any point that you made in your response. And we are in agreement in many ways, more ways than not. If I had to pick a percentage, I'd say probably around 90%. That said, this is not to discuss the other 10%. This is to give a little bit of context to why I continue, or excuse me, why I spoke about that rift. Because one thing that progressives aren't necessarily always the best at is perception. When I see a person such as Jimmy Dore compared to a person such as Jank Uger, I see almost the dynamic of a Hannity and Combs where one looks the part of Hollywood casting and the other one is the thing which Hollywood would be talking about. Jimmy Dore is a representation of that gritty bottom of the barrel group of people who without them, the Democratic Party could not survive. Yet, the Democratic Party always forgets about. Whereas, Jake <clears throat> Ugard is more of the self-made millionaire who may not always have the most glamorous things, but 
represents that American's dream realized for that small segment of the population that can realize it. Because it is not meant for everybody. There will be winners, there will be losers. The fracture, which I am talking about, is captured in your equation of progressives and liberals. Liberals in the 1930s did not want the New Deal. They had to be drug along with the conservatives to see that the New Deal was going to, one, solve the issues of the time, and then two, that it was required to make their riches safe in the bank so there wouldn't be a revolution. Liberals are moderates because if they go too far, they become socialists. We've seen the same dynamic in the 1960s where the liberals, the moderates, really, who call themselves liberals, who can trace their philosophical underpinnings back 300 years, thought that black people were moving too quickly and became overnight the Nixonites. I am watching this progressive movement, which is what it really should be called because all of the other strands below it come from this one single push forward. I'm watching this progressive movement set itself up like these previous classes of liberals. And unfortunately, not many progressives understand that this is happening. Many are proclaiming democratic socialism. When I have watched history and understand that many of them, if they start to see democratic socialism take shape too quickly, too rapidly, will retreat. And what happened with Jimmy and TYT may have been absolutely nothing. And I have no reason to doubt the information, which seems far more informative than mine that you gave. That may be nothing. But I can see on the ground level where I am at, and I understand that where I currently reside, it's more conservative than it is progressive. But even amongst those progressives who I am talking to, whether in person or on various Facebook page, social media pages, there is those groups, those splintered groups. And you can see those who are more easily open or more open to democratic socialism and those who speak like they are. But when you dive deep, they are not. This is the point that I've been trying to hit on. Maybe I haven't done it correctly but it is something that needs to be watched. And if possibly, if possible, should I say, um, it's something that should be avoided. I don't know if that could be done, but history will prove uh, rather or not that could be done. Thank you again and keep up the good work.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to respond again to V, you may recall his previous message used... The Exodus of Jimmy Dore, a, a progressive, sort of a Bernie or Bust style, uh, you know, political comedian who used to be attached to the Young Turks Network. He uh, left, and so V was using that as sort of a, a lens through which to see the broader split in the left generally, the, the sort of the more classic progressive versus liberal, the, the far left versus establishment sort of comparison. So one, one could say that that's a good example or a good lens through which to see that. I, I don't particularly see it that way because I, I think that Jimmy Dore represents something a little bit different. And I don't I, and I wouldn't say that the Young Turks make a good example of real liberals the the ones who only want to make minor tweaks but leave the major system in place i i, th- I think they have a range of of opinions over at that show i, I mean jank certainly calls himself at least in years past a hardcore capitalist and and so uh it, it's hard to know <laughs> what he thinks as years go by because he he keeps being pulled to the, to the left, basically. So you know, he, he's in favor of Medicare for all, for example, not sort of fiddling around the edges and tweaking the current system. And, and so when, when the rubber hits the road, he, they tend to be in the major reform, let's completely change the way we do things. And, and then they, you know, sometimes they end up talking about like the system is good. It just needs tweaks. But, uh, Anyway, that, that's sort of why I see it as as not a, a great comparison. But now that V has clarified, let's just talk about liberals versus progressives in, in, in general. I definitely have some thoughts on that. So I I think that I mean I mean the big split is you know as as we've been saying and, and as V said the the split between those who want fundamental reforms and those who want to keep the basic structures in place. And maybe make some tweaks. They might have some criticisms. Oh, you know, taxes on the rich are a little too low, but like everything's pretty okay other than that or, you know, whatever. And, and so uh, I do not argue that that is the case. <laughs> I, I think that fundamental reform is necessary. Going back to what Naomi Klein was saying just after the Trump election, no is not enough. We can't just uh, reject the worst of the conservative instincts and and what she means by that is we actually need fundamental reform because what we had before was the liberal technocratic the system is okay let's just make some tweaks you know the private health healthcare is okay let's just put some regulation on it that was the status quo that laid the groundwork that fertilized the ground from which the Trump movement grew, from which the Tea Party movement grew. So uh, we can't say that the Obama years were great. Let's just go back to doing more of that because that helped make where we are now. So like 
Obamacare versus Medicare for all. One is the status quo with tweaks. One is a major new system that really reworks the way we think about that. So, uh, you know, the status quo for healthcare actually empowers health insurance industries to fight against universal coverage. So that, that was one of the warnings way back in the day. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if we put in a, a mandate that people buy insurance from health insurance companies, they're just, they're actually going to make more money and they're going to have more power to prevent us from upending the system entirely. And of course, giving insurance companies more money doesn't mean that everyone's going to be covered. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to have better health insurance or better health coverage. So that because the Obama administration was so focused on that and it's the biggest piece of Obama's legacy they're now trying to repeal, that's a really good example of how liberal technocratic thinking makes a few improvements but leaves you in a place where you're constantly on the defense fighting for crumbs when you could be on the offense fighting for systemic change that can't be undone. Medicare for all could not be undone the way Obamacare can be undone because Obamacare is a Rube Goldberg machine where you just need to kick one little piece out here or there and the whole thing starts to collapse under its own weight. And, and, uh, you know, and, and moving to a different category, like as we've been hearing today, the status quo economics fosters all kinds of horrible things, jingoism, depression, disaffection. Uh, you know, you can't just make small tweaks to the system because clearly it's working horribly even when it's working well. That's how you can tell that a system is horribly broken, that when it's working the way it's supposed to be working, it doesn't work well and makes life terrible for people, even when they think they're doing everything they're supposed to do and they're getting what they're supposed to get and they're achieving what they're supposed to achieve and they're still really miserable or really lonely or really burnt out. That That's how you know things are broken. So getting back to the progressives versus liberals uh, debate, there will always be those liberals out there who think that the system only needs tweaks rather than fundamental reform. And sometimes that may even be the case. Like, for instance, uh, the scare tactic about Social Security running out of money. There is like some grains of truth to that. But the people who say it's running out of money, we better like throw the whole thing away or cut services or privatize it. No, no. In that case, you actually do only need a little tweak. If you're really worried about it, just raise the FICA tax cap. Small tweak, problem solved. Uh, but when it comes to major issues where small tweaks won't work, it is our job, it's progressives' job to make the case that some systems are fundamentally broken and need to be rethought entirely. And reality is actually helpful to us on this. Watching the fight over Obamacare has convinced more people that Medicare for all is the necessary path forward, just like extreme weather convinces more people that we need to act on climate change. Reality works in our favor. The curse of being a progressive is that we tend to see the future and understand the changes that we need to make long before most other people. And it's our job to see that and alert everyone else. But remember that People's perspectives are changeable. We are not complicated three-dimensional people, as is so often claimed. We are complicated four-dimensional people, which means that there are a lot of liberals out there wanting to make small tweaks to our system only because they have not yet seen the system 
as being fundamentally broken yet, and it's our job to show them that it is. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.